0: Hello and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London and I will be your host for this episode. In today's show, I'll be talking to Camilla Longden. He's a Research Software Engineer at Microsoft Research in Cambridge, UK. I met Camilla at the RSE Southeast and London workshop in February this year, where she presented her work. Camilla began her scientific career by studying physics at the University of Cambridge, after which she worked as a software engineer at ARM and then joined Microsoft Research in 2016. She now works in the All Data AI group called ADA, where she uses machine learning with a focus on deep learning to have impact on real-world problems. Hello Camilla and welcome to RSE Stories. Camilla, could you give us an overview of your background and how you became a software engineer in research?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I've always loved math and science. I think that's common for a lot of RSEs. It was always my favourite subject in school um, and always what kind of I like to read about and what always wanted to learn more. This led to when I was choosing my university subjects, uh, it was fairly obvious that I wanted to do something science-based. And I actually ended up going to university for natural sciences. Um, Technically physics was what I ended up specializing in. During my degree, I kind of saw lots of people learning to code um, and kind of understood that coding could be something that would be beneficial um, to my scientific career. And once I started coding, I realized that I really enjoyed that too. And similarly to when I was doing solving a maths problem or a physics problem, coding kind of ticked that box in me, made me excited and I just lose all the time. Um, So yeah, taught myself Python um, and then did a few internships in my long university summer holidays that I I miss a lot and discovered that, yeah, even the, the, the software side, I really enjoyed as well. And, Again, that led on to the career when I was thinking about what to do after my master's. I was like, well, I enjoyed these internships in software engineering. It seemed to be something I enjoy and people are willing to pay me money for. So that seems like a no brainer. Um, so I worked for Arm for a few years after graduating. For those who don't know, Arm make chips primarily for smartphones, but also for basically everything. So they're primarily a hardware business, but also have a software side, which is where I worked sort of developing debuggers and models um, and all sorts of software tooling that enables you to actually run software on the chips. And that's really where I learned my proper software engineering skills, where I kind of cut my teeth learning how to work as part of a software team, how to actually ship products, how to Write proper tests. How to make sure things were well documented and all those things that are really key to being a good software engineer. One thing I missed, though, at ARM was the science side. Um, I got to do a bit of research type things, but not as much as maybe I wanted to do. Um, and I got the opportunity to move to Microsoft Research, um, which I I took with open arms. It really allowed me to get back to working on cutting edge research in computer science, which was a new field for me, and. Yeah, I've been there ever since. My original role was more of a broad one. Um, So I was working in a RSE, in a centralized RSE group. So I worked in many different teams on many different types of computer science research, from HCI research, human-computer interaction, through to systems and networking um, and kind of everything in between. But I realized that what I enjoyed the most was the machine learning side. Machine learning was something I'd obviously heard about before starting at Microsoft, but didn't really know much about. And when I started at Microsoft, I started learning a bit about the theory, learning about how it actually worked. And again, just like coding, just like maths, it was this thing that I was like, oh, this is really cool. This is really interesting. Um, And so about a year ago, I moved into a full-time ML role. So I'm now only working on machine learning engineering projects.
0: Thanks very much, Camilla. Uh, For this excellent overview. Um, I believe your current work at Microsoft, Project Tokyo, involves helping blind people or people with low vision in their daily lives using AI and machine learning. And uh, I find that terribly exciting. Could you tell us more about it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Project Tokyo has been going since about 2016. And the goal of the project is to create an agent that augments the capabilities of people who are blind or low vision. Um And this takes the form in Project Tokyo of a modified HoloLens, using a th- which uses a 3D soundscape to tell the user about their surroundings and more importantly, who's around them. Now, the first thing I thought when I heard this is people with blind or low vision using a HoloLens seems a little bit crazy because when I imagine what you'd use a HoloLens for, it's to view these kind of holograms in the world around you using augmented reality. And if you're blind or low vision, that doesn't seem as helpful. But actually, the thing that's really useful about the HoloLens and other augmented reality glasses is the array of sensors they have. They have fantastic cameras, um, both visual cameras as well as depth sensors and they actually the hololens has some really interesting audio technology that allows you to do this kind of spatial 3d audio so the project so project tokyo uses this system to use the hololens sensors to work out where people are when they enter or leave the user's kind of field of view um, you can also, it also tells you who's looking at the user or who the user is looking at, which is important for people with low vision. And we also use facial recognition of known individuals so that instead of just saying someone has entered your field of view, it might say Peter has entered my field of view. You, and again, it's kind of 3D. So the blind the blind user can tell in space where that person is.
0: Uh, wow. That sounds almost like science fiction. I remember sort of I'm finding that generation who watched Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, There was a character in there who had almost something like what you just described. Could you tell us What components of the project you're working on and uh, what excites you about this project specifically?
1: So this project was originally envisaged working with adults, um, but we've more recently moved on to working with blind and low vision children. Um, This comes with its own challenges, of course, but also comes with a whole array of even more potential gains. One thing that I learned when starting on this project is that two thirds of blind children have a diagnosis of autism at some point in their life. And this isn't because they're actually autistic, but it's because they struggle interacting with other people because they don't learn the social cues that sighted children do. Um, So if we're able to help them learn these social cues and learn how to interact socially, that can benefit their lives in lots of ways. Um, And some of the early studies of having children using the Tokyo system have been really exciting. At the moment, we've kind of done it with one child or two child, you know, very, very small numbers. Mm-hmm. But we're actually looking at deploying the system into schools so that we can test it with more children and with a more challenging scenario. So as part of that, there's a bunch of engineering stuff that needs to be improved. So currently the system with lots of machine learning models, it needs a big box with lots of GPUs. And it's actually a big black box that needs to sit in the corner of a room for the HoloLens to communicate with. This is impractical. For a child in a school mm. um, children move around a lot if they're moving classrooms multiple times a day or going out into the playground you don't really want to have to lug this you know really quite heavy box around so I'm looking at enabling the models to be able to run on a smaller device um, initially we're looking at a laptop but in the long term we'd love for this to be able to work on a smartphone so this will enable kind of <laughs> the more more accessibility of the tech I'm also looking at improving the computer vision tech itself Um, So the models that we're using are a couple of years old. um, And a couple of years ago, these were cutting edge state of the art computer vision models. But the field has moved on remarkably in the past few years. And what was something that you'd have to handcraft a couple of years ago is now stuff that is available on some really lovely um, open source GitHub libraries that have been optimized for running quickly and accurately. Um, So I'm looking at porting away from our older models to use these newer ones.
0: The the technology stack sounds quite interesting. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about this, uh, what kind of technologies they're using? Because um, in machine learning and in AI, there are, in fact, now uh, libraries available that can also be exported to mobile devices. I believe the TensorFlow has something that runs in JavaScript and can be ported to a mobile device. I mean, what kind of technology, if you're able to talk about this, what kind of technologies are you using?
1: Yes, yeah, so most of our models are PyTorch, the current models, Mm -hmm. Um, we have a number of different models. So we we use a model that detects pose of people, and that's what we use to kind of tell where the person is in the space and then track them across the space. We also use some facial recognition models, which are separate. Um, And then we also use some various models to kind of align the the embedding of the, the facial recognition that we found with the kind of gallery of existing faces that we know about to kind of work out, okay, that's what that face is. But who, who is that actually? So yeah, this, the technology stack. Yeah, we mostly use PyTorch. And then there's sort of some C++ open CV stuff running on the HoloLens itself.
0: One question that comes up re- regularly is, uh, how do you verify that the model is good? So you do performance testing, and etc. It's quite an art to actually get it right. I mean, how do you go about that?
1: So that's a really good question, and that's actually something which we've been talking about in the team quite a lot recently. The idea of metrics in machine learning isn't a new one, but a lot of metrics in machine learning are kind of these very number centric, of so accuracy. You know, how many faces are we getting right in each frame? But we really want to think about this from a human centric perspective. That might not be what the person using the system actually cares about. What we actually op- want to optimize for is a good experience using the system so we really want to design metrics that think about the user that put them in the in the center of everything and yeah you know, maybe we do use those accuracy metrics but always pivoting to make sure that it's the user that's happy and at the end of the day the way that we really work out if this tech is working or not is by doing user studies and that's been a big part of the project is right from the start we're working Core members of the team are people who are blind and low vision. You know, we work with people across the country, across the world, to really make sure that what we're doing is enabling them. It's not kind of telling them what's best for them or optimising for something that isn't actually helpful. Uh,
0: Camilla, what was the motivation to focus on blind and visually impaired people for this project? Do you know that?
1: Yeah. So visually impaired people are actually power users of these kind of agent technologies. So things like Cortana, Siri and Alexa, they're, they're the ones who use these and are power users of these technologies. So they're really pushing the limits of these and what they can do. But these agents weren't necessarily designed initially with blind and visually impaired people in mind. Um, so we wanted to imagine what we could develop working with them from the start, working with them and developing systems with them in mind. But it's important to remember that blind and low vision, particularly adults, have their own techniques for interacting with the world, much like any adult does. And our goal is really to augment their capabilities. Um, We're not trying to say this is the way that you should do things and the way you should interact with the world, but find out how they already interact with the world and how we can make that easier Mm -hmm. and better for them.
0: AI and machine learning in medicine is a relatively young field, or so it seems and uh, I've been to conferences where there were some very interesting projects being presented, uh, like, for instance, earlier this year. Um, a lot of them seem to focus on diagnostics, like, for instance, helping radiologists with medical image evaluation, etc. But I think what you guys are doing, human and computer interaction, is taking this to another level. How do you see this project being rolled out
1: Well, yeah, AI and machine learning is an interesting field when it comes to age. It's kind of very young and very old at the same time. It's really seen a renaissance um, in the past few years with kind of deep learning really taking off and really being able to actually be used in practice. But I agree, kind of applying it to new fields and really thinking about the human. Now, these things actually work is really important. What we want to do really is push our understanding of what's possible with these technologies. The project, like I said, has been going since 2016, and we've learned a lot of new things and pivoted our direction a number of times. So it's kind of hard to know where it will go in the future, because the outcome really depends on the the user um, experiments that we run. If this tech is impactful, in pe- is as impactful in people's lives as we hope, we might try and find partners to help us deploy it out into the world. But really what we're looking at at the moment is trying to take it from these very small groups of Uh, users to slightly larger groups and see if our hypotheses still hold.
0: So I went to a couple of workshops um, AI earlier this year, and there's a lot of excitement about opportunities in the medical field. But I think a number of these projects struggle to actually roll out in practice. So, um, I mean, you mentioned that you're trying to roll it out and you have user groups. But I think when it comes to rolling out uh, new applications, in particular machine learning and AI in medicine, There's a difficulty to roll this out into the clinical practice. What's your experience been in this field?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is hard and it's something that needs to be done with a lot of care. I've actually been really proud to work at Microsoft working on AI because I think we Go above and beyond um, with deploying things into the into the real world, um, we actually have a responsible AI standard that was published a few months ago, but has been kind of doing the rounds internally for quite a while, which kind of set, sets out a list of of guidelines and things you should make sure to think about before trying to to use a machine learning system in the real world. Another thing that's really important is that we've had users involved in this project in Project Tokyo right from the start. Um, mm. So it's not just it's getting their buy-in from the start on the project, helping understand what's going too far for them, what's important to them, and what what this kind of system could look like in a real community. So yeah, I think you need to get the users on board, right? You need to have them understand what the trades off trade-offs are, what data are they Is the system collecting and what are they getting in return from that? Um, I think if you do that, if you engage early um, and engage kind of honestly and transparently, then that's the best way to try and deploy things.
0: I think it's a very interesting subject that you just mentioned, which is uh, ethics in data science and machine learning. And we heard a lot about it and you mentioned uh, some of it already. Could you expand a little bit more uh, sort of what your understanding of that is and how do you see to be implemented in real projects?
1: I mean, it's it's so important. And there are a number of fantastic researchers writing excellent papers um, on you know, the whole topic. I think the kind of simple, this very top level, simple level is the data sets a lot of these systems are trained on are biased because humans are biased, but that's kind of Mm -hmm. only the very top level. You also need to consider how the data is being collected, how the system will impact the community it exists in. It's a really complicated ethical field. Is your system going to reinforce bias in society? Is it going to make things worse? Is it going to make things better? You almost can't know until the thing is deployed. There's a, a group in Microsoft Research in New York who are called the FATE group, which stands for Fairness, Accountability, Transparency, and Ethics. Um, and they do a lot of research on this exact topic. Um, And I've read some papers coming out of that group. And yeah, it's it's really fascinating. So I think if you're interested, I am not an expert on this. Um, Go and read up about it. There's some really interesting stuff out there.
0: You mentioned that it's important to reduce the bias. And I think that takes us to the question of diversity and data science. And I had a very interesting talk earlier this year from somebody from Benevolent AI at a one-day conference at UCL, uh, talking about the dangers of uh, lack of diversity in data science. And she pointed that out in, re- with respect to clinical trials in particular. So from your perspective, and I think you touched on that a little bit already, What do you see are the dangers of lack of diversity in data science? Uh, Could you give some concrete examples to give give us a feel for this?
1: I mean, I think lack of diversity in any field is a bad thing. Um, I think we work best when we have people from different backgrounds who care about different things, who have different experiences. Um, But I do think it is very important in data science. A lot of the work we do is kind of building off these these traditional data sets that are created and put out into the world. I think there was a really interesting piece of work that came up in the news recently um, where people were using computer vision techniques to upsample images. Um, So you had a pixelated image and you created a high definition face from that pixelated face. This code was released and people used it fairly early on to Take a picture of Barack Obama, pixelate it, and then upsample it using these techniques. And it produced a picture of a white man um, who did not look like Barack Obama. Um, and a similar thing was done with a lot of other non-white, well-known people. And this was just kind of, you know, there was this huge uproar in the community. Like, why, why was this never tried? And people were saying, you know, it's because the data set is biased. You know, it's been trained on mostly white people. So that's what it's learned to do. But my kind of feeling is, it kind of reflects the diversity of the team doing that work as much as anything else. Um, you know, probably when they were doing that, they tried it on pictures of themselves and their friends and it just clearly never crossed the mind of anyone in that team to try it on, to test it on non-white faces. Um, and I think that's kind of the big problem there, not just that the system didn't work on a diverse set of faces, but that no one in the research group thought to, to test it.
0: I think that's a very important point you're making, because I agree that diversity and the dangers of lack of diversity in the products that we have, in software products in particular, starts right at the diversity of the team. And I think because that translates into the product itself and how it's being perceived and how it's being taken up and how it's being used, of course. I would like to move on a little bit more into uh, research software engineering in particular, at UCL, we have, for instance, um, a group of people that are working in AI and machine learning. You know, the majority of them do not. And But where do you see that AI and machine learning is going for research software engineering in particular?
1: So I think the real advances in machine learning that we're going to see in the future are going to be taking machine learning tools and techniques and applying them to new and different fields. RSCs are good at this already. We're really used to taking new technologies to people in other research disciplines um, and showing them how to use it and how it can augment their, their current re- research practices. This is kind of happening a bit already in more STEM related disciplines non-machine learning computer science fields. I think there's a lot of machine learning being done in, in physics, so like astronomy and high energy physics where they have a lot of data. But I could see a world where we could apply, you know, some of the machine learning kind of knowledge based tools to a field like history, so that a historian can have this kind of automatically built knowledge base of all the stuff they've discovered. Um, and they can use that to to do better research. And that's something that an RSE could help help the researcher do. So I think it's going to be another tool that RSEs add to their toolkit um, and really help us enable fantastic research in all different disciplines.
0: Mm. And you presented uh, some of these uh, results already at the RSE Southeast London workshop earlier this year. Could you talk a little bit about what your link is to the research software engineering community in the UK?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I started my job as an RSE in 2016. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't really know what the job title meant. Um, I took the job because what because the role seemed cool and interesting. Um, and it had this RSE title attached to it. So my first manager at Microsoft um, is a man called Matthew Johnson. He was actually part of the RSE committee when it first started um, and he gave the keynote talk at the very first RSE conference. So he really encouraged me to look into the community to kind of answer some of my questions I had about what this RSE thing was. Um, And I attended the conference in its second year for the first time. And I've been every year ever since. Um, It's a wonderful community. I've learned so much every time I've spoken to people from the community. I've learned from all the talks and the workshops, but even just the casual interactions. It's been really interesting and really helped me grow in my job and my career.
0: RSEs usually work in academia uh, or for universities or for academic institutions. You work for Microsoft. How do you see that link between industry and academia?
1: I, th- I think there's a really strong connection between academia and ind- academic RSEs and industrial RSEs. I think there's a lot we can learn from each other. Um, and I think there's a lot of growth to be had in both places. Uh, Microsoft doesn't do everything perfectly with regards to RSEs, and I'm sure academia doesn't either. Um, and my hope is that both of us can can learn and grow from the other.
0: Uh, You mentioned that you're taking interns uh, from academia. Could you talk a little bit about that experience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Microsoft Research has a huge internship program. Um, The Cambridge Lab, which is where I work, takes, I mean, this year accepted. We're obviously in some very interesting situations, but we normally have about 100 interns every summer. To put that into context, we have a full time staff of maybe 300. Um, so let me tell you, the queues for lunch in the summer tend to be a lot longer than uh, around Christmas time. Um, and it's fantastic. It's the interns that come in bring new ideas, bring new collaborations. They do really important work for the various projects in the lab. The, the majority of our interns are PhD students at universities all across the world, but we also do sometimes take masters and undergraduate students as well, and they get a chance for a few months. Three months is the length of a typical in a typical internship. They get to spend three months working. With our teams doing work that may lead to a paper, may lead to inclusion in in an important project, they get to see what it's like working in industrial research lab and hopefully choose to join us uh, after their PhD. But some don't and some just may just remain really important collaborators for us in connections.
0: Is there anything you wish to see more from the RSE community?
1: So I think I kind of touched on this, but I would really love to see more industrial RSEs in the community. Um, we have them in Microsoft, but I know other companies um, have people with the RSE title. And I think it would be great to have more of a presence there. I think it's important for industrial RSEs to give back to the community and help strengthen the academic roots of the RSE career. Um, and so that's something that I think would be would be really great.
0: Uh, thanks very much. We're now coming to the end of the podcast. And there are two questions that I'd like to ask. The first one would be, if you imagine a point far ahead into the future, and you going to look back to your professional life, what would a successful career as a research software engineer look like to you?
1: I want to have impact in the world. I want to write some really nice code that does something really cool that can help people. Um, my goal is always to to do things that helps real people out in the real world um, and make a difference in their lives. So yeah, I think I would love to look back and be able to point to a project or multiple projects, which I could see having made a difference.
0: Finally, uh, you spend a lot of time in coding and um, doing exciting projects uh, that have a real impact on people's lives. But what do you do when you're not programming and helping research and leading teams and uh, RSEs?
1: So a lot of the stuff I would normally be doing, I'm not doing at the moment because of the the COVID pandemic. Um, But some things that I have been doing, um, I've been playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons in lockdown. Um, I have a, a group of friends who I play with every week. That's really fun just to escape the real world for a bit you know, fight some dragons and explore some castles. The other thing that I've been doing is I'm engaged and I've been planning. I've gone from planning one wedding to planning two um, again because of the COVID situation. Um, So that's taken up a fair bit of my time um, and my partners trying to to replan that and then reorganize all the things associated with that.
0: Wow, that sounds very exciting! Well, thank you so much, Camille. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, congratulations to the engagement! And, uh, thank you. All the best for the future wedding. <laughs> thank you very much. Bye. Okay. Bye now. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcast from. And with that, goodbye.